Hello everybody, Dr. F. Scott Field here, and I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor. The NPTE Final Frontier is the review course that I wish was around when I took the board exam. For those of you who know my story, it took me a handful of times to pass that exam, and quite frankly, I really wish I had an, an, an exam review course around, uh, just like the NPTE Final Frontier. Uh, check out their website, NPTEFF.com. And use the code HET at checkout for 10% off to all of our listeners and fans. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I've got with me today, longtime friend, uh, mentor, uh, somebody who I look up to in the world of academia and beyond, Dr. Mary Blackington. Mary, how are you? Catch us up a little bit and let us know this is your second time on the show now, right? It is. I looked back um, at the podcast history, and my last podcast with HET was in 2017. And at that time, I was the director of the hybrid program at NSU at a time when hybrid was just catching on, right? It was in it still a lot of naysayers out there. Um, and so I continued along that route and then um, left NSU at the end of 2020 and in 2021 started working with Rehab Essentials in a really exciting new program called In Tandem DPT um, that's been able to utilize all the things I learned as a director of a hybrid program. But also, like you, I'm passionate about education and how people learn. So it's been wonderful. Yeah. I mean, uh, I myself have gone into teaching in a hybrid program now, so I know, I know the ins and outs of it a little bit. It's quite a roller coaster ride. That's for sure that, you know, the one thing that I've found that has been pretty good for me since moving into academia in general has just been knowing that change is a constant and just embrace it, you know, and, and roll with it. And, uh, like you said, you've kind of come up on some change in, in, in your own path. So tell us a little bit about uh, In Tandem. What, what, what exactly is that? What are you up to with that? Uh, in Tandem is a collaborative DPT program that was very intentionally built for us to work alongside with universities. Um, so in it, it includes a, a curriculum that was very purposely designed with the future of PT education and the future of physical therapy and society in mind. But the important part about it, it was designed so that when we collaborate with universities, we're able to lift them up to do the things that, quite frankly, we haven't been able to do for many, many years. Uh, so we have a curriculum, we partner in the curriculum, and our Rehab Essentials or in tandem faculty provide about 45% of the content contact hours that the university will use. And that shifts the role of university faculty to really be an expert educator. And the university faculty become the folks who are the coaches, uh, the mentors, the people that bring learning alive, and more importantly, apply learning to real clinical scenarios, whether it's in their classroom in a simulated experience or in an actual healthcare setting. So it's a, it's a very big shift of a role, um, but we think a critical one for the future of the profession. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it, you know, it, it definitely sounds like uh, trying to mix things up a little bit and really shift the way that we, we do things, which after attending ELC again this year, uh, it seems like we need that. It seems like there's uh, a lot of doom and gloom in the industry, uh, both from a clinical side and an academic side. There's 
a lot of uncertainty as to, you know, what the best models are to deliver uh, general physical therapy curriculum. And I don't know that we have a great answer to that. Luckily, there's a lot of good people pushing the envelope and trying to do good things and figure that out. And truth be told, I don't think we need a, you know, a, a one size fits all, but I, I definitely think a lot of the models we currently have need some improvement uh, for, for a lot of reasons, but let's maybe dive into that a little bit. You know, why did rehab essentials feel like, you know, uh, they needed to develop in tandem? What was, what was the thought process there? Yeah. So there, there are a lot of reasons and I would say those reasons are slightly different depending on whether you're talking about the profession and society, the faculty that teach at PT programs or the students. So I'll start, um, with the profession and society. You know, if you go back to all of the Paula Sarasoli lecture, Pauline Sarasoli lectures, including that of Diane Jetty in 2016, you know, every year the emphasis is we need to change. We've been doing the same thing for 100 years. We, we ch- seem to be comfortable changing degrees. Uh, we change the content, right? It's like if you were making an apple pie and you say, oh, I'm going to throw in a little bit of cinnamon this time or allspice or something like that. And that's all content oriented. And we even recently in the last, you know, 10 or so years changed the delivery model. But what we haven't done is changed our approach to educating entry-level students. And so that's, that's one thing is to, to shift that. And we were really inspired uh, by the perspective articles in academic medicine by Ezekiel Emanuel and George Tebow. Um, and I've shared those with you that you can put in the show notes. Um, but basically, they said some important things. And one of them was that we keep replicating this lecture process in programs all across the country. We're spending all this time on lectures, right? And why not harness some of the experts to do the lecture part so that the faculty could be in that mentoring role? And really, you know, leaning in, I mean, we all know how important assessment is and feedback, but what happens as a typical faculty, you develop, you develop, you create the content, you present the content and, oh, you're exhausted. You have no time to apply the learning and really spend time on good assessment. Assessment becomes like an afterthought. No, yeah, we have to assess that. We have to have grades. Emmanuel, Ezekiel Emmanuel in particular said, it's time to harness the power of the experts for those lectures and let those lectures be asynchronous, right? There's no reason, there's no magic in being in the same room at the same time. Um, And so he really encouraged a blended format and Thibault kind of did the same thing. He said, we need to move to competency-based time variable education. And also he said, we need to shift our teaching from like everything is acute to really recognizing the impact of chronic disease on society. Um, and also said, both of them said, you know, shorten the preclinical time and emphasize clinical time because as you know, and I know, and anyone that's been in professional health professions education, we learned so much when we're embedded in the clinic. So that's, that's another reason. We also really believe in decreasing what Steve Tepper terms is unwarranted variability in education, right? As you said, differences between universities. I mean, that's what, that's what makes us all different, just like all people are different. But there's so much variable that if you're a clinical instructor, you have no idea what you're going to get in terms of competency. 
And that, like many much smarter people than me, have said year after year, we need to be able to say that we have similar focus in terms of our competencies. And another reason to do this is that as we have focused on content over all these years, I believe we have just bombarded our students, right? It's a, it's a case of cognitive overload. And in fact, when I was a young teacher, I used to think it was like gift to the students if I gave them more hours of lecture, right? Like, look what I've given you for instead of three hours, I've given you four on this topic. And what we're doing is we're um, filling up. We just keep dumping more information um, on the student. And we know from well-done literature that that is not good for learning. Steve Tepper likes to say we should be leaving our students somewhat hungry to learn more. And instead, we just say they have to know everything. And a good example of that is, you know, all of the uh, competencies that are, have been generated by all the specialist area, geriatrics, pediatrics, neuro, acute care, they are wonderful and they're really great guidelines. But if you think about trying to embed all of those guidelines in an entry-level program, we would never be done. You'd have a five-year curriculum and students would be exhausted from the learning. So that is another compelling reason to do it. Well, I, I'm going to pause and let you ask questions because I really haven't talked about why it would be helpful for the student and for the faculty, but I'll pause for a sec. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that, I think, in a moment. One of the things that, that really hit me is, like you said, the cognitive overload. And again, I think it helped me being an English major before being a physical therapist, before being a professor, to put my ego at the door a long time ago and just say, hey. I don't know everything and I'm okay with that. I just can't, there's only so much I can put up here in, in, in the old noggin and I need to just be okay with what, what's up there and needing to keep what I need up there and, and needing to learn more when I need it. And I think lifelong learning has to be looked at on a very individual personal level to decide because there's a lot of options out there that constitute lifelong learning. And so I feel like I'm doing that Whereas others are doing it different ways and, and that's fine, right? I think, like you said, if we leave a little bit of curiosity still on the bone, that'll help foster lifelong learning. And the bigger thing for me as of late, having attended, like we said, ELC, there was a lot of push for competency-based learning. There's a lot of people trying to do that. Our, you know, our university being one of them, we're looking to, to switch to that. And I think there's going to be a lot of universities following suit after this, this ELC. There were, I, I can count at least three or four presentations on competency-based learning this year. So it's good to see that, I think, especially in healthcare, not just physical therapy, right? We're, we're taking some, right. some pages out of other healthcare practitioners' books. But the other thing that I, I kind of saw that kind of ties in here was there was also a big push for educational research. And uh, being an EDD nerd myself, that is kind of important to me because I'm more interested in the how we learn and how we can teach to that learning so that knowledge gets best transferred. The cognitive overload coming back full circle is if you do keep dumping too much, even for me, if I teach too much, I'm wiped out. I'm worthless by the end of a lecture or a lab, you know, and, and I, I know the students are in an even worse position. They're sitting there, you know, eyes glazed over. They're out to lunch somewhere. It's just not. It's not conducive to learning. So for me, you came from rote memorization and trying to do everything that way through many graduate programs. 
realizing that was not learning, that wasn't a good way to go about things. Took me getting into an EDD and going through it to learn that I wasn't a good learner. And so I had to go back and relearn. Now that I'm doing that, I'm ca- I feel like I'm catching up. And so I feel the educational research is a really important component of this. I'd like you to dive into that a little bit, if you don't mind, like where does the educational research stand with this? Like what, you know, obviously a lot of it is, is rooted in better education, right? right? So, so where, where does that kind of give you foundation and give you backbone and give you the, the oath to kind of push forward and say, Hey, here's what we've seen. Here's what we've learned through the research. You know, we need to start teaching better essentially right. and learning better, right? Students have a, a responsibility as well. And I think you kind of touched on that a little bit with, with, you know, their side of things. They've right. got to do the work as well. They've got to put in the time, at least a little bit, right? We can't give them everything. Like you, I went through an EDD program and, and through that, I really love learning about learning, right? And so in terms of educational research, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this in a couple of ways. First, in tandem DPT was designed as a collaborative partnership with universities, not a single universities. And what we envision is down the road, the if we have, let's say, three to eight collaborators, those collaborators are all having that same 45% of the background content. But what they could share and what we could do educational research on is what learning, what applied learning experience Um, What are the outcomes based on that? We can compare them. We can share ideas. Um, We can do some manipulation of variables because we're going to have distinct universities with different missions and therefore even they'll have different clinical education components, right? So on the big picture, what we're really excited about and on our advisory board included very brilliant people like Gail Jensen and Terry Nordstrom, Sharon Dunn and... um, Ellen Rubel, Nancy Beal, and others, that ability to do that is, is almost unparalleled, to be able to stand back and take the individual university away and look broadly at learning outcomes based on the experiences. So that's very broad. On a, on a more uh, granular level, I would say that we've known for many, many years that telling is not teaching, okay? Learning doesn't happen because someone told you. And if that were the case, then every child would never make a mistake because they listen to their parents, right? Um, and I say that with a wink, of course. So what we, we've known from educational research, not just in the professions, but just period, is that people learn from experiences and they build on those experiences. And really, good teaching is not about the content you, delect, you deliver, the lecture you deliver, the images that you put on your screen, what matters are the experiences that you create for the students to apply it. And in our profession, we know that applying it to practice matters. And, you know, the research that Gail Jensen and others did looking at excellence in PT education, they found exactly that. Those programs that they considered excellent engage their students in their clinic. They had simulations. They worked with residents who were being mentored by other people. So there was just this community um, of people. And so I think there's enough evidence across the board. It's just for some reason, Scott, we have held on for a very long time to being all about 
the lecture delivery, when in truth, there is no evidence that it is in the lecture that people learn. Interestingly, I just listened to a podcast this morning, uh, believe it or not, on memory and the brain. And the person in the podcast said that the important things for learning were that the information should be new. It could be emotional. Um, it should be impactful or surprising and novel as well. And if, if their experiences and skills, learning occurs and memory occurs when they are practiced a lot. So there's nothing in those elements that say a darn good lecture is where it happens. I, I, th I think you would agree that it's in the experiences. So the educational research backs that up. When we create that 45% of the content, we're using a really unique filming process. So we're filming the, the expert speaking. It's not a PowerPoint. We don't hand out PowerPoints. It's Carol Lewis or Bill Bosnell or Lisa Van Hoos. You're going to see them talking. And the educational literature says, when you watch someone, not just hear them, you, you watch them lean in, right? I'm someone that uses my hands a lot when I, because, you know, I'm Italian, I get excited, I use my hands. So in the lecture, you're going to see my hands moving. So we do that. We, we keep it in short 15-minute segments, which I'm sure you know in the hybrid literature says asynchronous type of learning is best if it's kept short. We also embed interactive knowledge checks. So the students have to stop, pause, answer a question. And because we have such a great editing team, um, it's all bookmarked. And so if someone gets an answer wrong, they can go back to an area and review it. And let me contrast that with what I did in the hybrid program at NSU that we, we did great things, but we did it differently. We did a voiceover PowerPoint. There might have been a question, but it wasn't an interactive question. Quite often, I would learn later, students put it on two or higher speed because they really didn't want to spend the time listening. And what they did is they printed the PowerPoints and they read the PowerPoints before the tests. Again, we don't believe that our 45% of lecture content is the most powerful. We think the secret sauce is you, the university faculty member, really, really designing an engaged simulation, great opportunity for feedback, right? And then really thoughtful competency-based assessments that grow over time and that link skills that one might have in, you know, the physical therapist as a moral agent, but also as a clinician in musculoskeletal lower quarter. Um, so that's the other element of our curriculum is that we try to link the topics and uh, it's also an integrated curriculum. So students don't have to go, oh, what did I learn in pathophys? And oh, what did I learn in this? All the key topics are integrated so that you're learning together, not in what I call breadcrumbs or in parts. From my experience and, and from a, you know, completely, you know, and a one all of my best learning was experiential learning. It was clinical. I learned the best on my, you know, clinical rotations. Uh, I learned the best whenever I was shadowing or doing volunteer hours or, you know, whatever, you know, was that threw me into the mix. And then eventually I ended up doing my dissertation on service-based learning. Right. So yeah, I could teach you the Berg balance scale on a PowerPoint, right. In class, or we could go out and do a community service project where we do a balance and fall screen for the community that benefits from it. 
And I can teach you the Berg balance scale there as well. And that to me is experiential learning and it, it, it's far more impactful and it, and it, it's easier to see and make the connections the more we do that. So. Exactly. You know, it, and I mean, Scott, you could, you don't have to be in the same place as the students to say, let me tell you about the Berg. Here it is. This is how it works. I'm going to show you. That's the things that our in tandem team does. We give you the background. Here's the, you know, psychometric properties of the Berg balance scale. Here's a demonstration. So we, we also provide um, the lab segments. So we're introducing the content, but it's you, the faculty member. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. You're the one that provides the experience that is going to be novel for the students. It's going to be exciting. There might even be emotions, you know, learning to tell somebody that their score means that they're at risk for falling. I mean, that's an emotional and impactful experience. And, and that's where we wish all educators were instead of, oh, let me make another PowerPoint. Right. And quite frankly, I didn't learn very well from the sage on a stage approach back when I was in PT school. Mm -hmm. So, and again, I, I was an English major, so it wasn't, it wasn't a natural transition for me from like science background to medical background, right? I had to do a lot of learning anyway, above and beyond, I think. But I think if you look at the big picture, I think it's going to take that shift because I know students don't like it either. And I don't personally like lecturing all that much. I don't like being the sage on a stage. I'd rather, you know, let's do the work beforehand. Let's come together and let's have a discussion. You know, let's, let's talk about these things. Let's break them down. Let's see if we can make the bigger connections. Because again, this is not how I learned. This wasn't how I was doing things in the past. And that was not successful for me. So having now seen the other side and like, oh, okay, that's what a flip lecture looks like. Oh, okay. This is how we can flip the classroom. And this is how we can put more onus on the student learning, come prepared, then have engaged dialogue, then put that to the next level and show them how to implement it clinically. You know, it all makes sense to me now, you know, and again, I feel like I'm playing a little bit of catch up. So I'm glad that, that we're seeing these things that are kind of, you know, working through that, but like, take us through the big picture now. How, do, how does it work? Tell, tell us how your, your program kind of fits in now. What does in tandem look like from a, a, a nuts and bolts kind of component? So again, it is a collaboration. So it's not a product, um, you know, Rehab Essentials has um, courses that universities use as a single entity. It is not that. It is an entire curriculum that has been developed uh, with all the course objectives, with room for um, universities to put their specific additional objectives on it. For example, our first collaborator is a faith-based university. And so importantly, they have faith-based objectives that are added to that curriculum. Um, and the university also decides the pacing of it. So we design the curriculum in eight-week blocks. So of the 29 courses, it, um, it was built as a two-and-a-half-year curriculum, by the way, but it can be made longer or shorter. Every course is designed in eight weeks. And in that way, every eight-week block, there's only three courses. Going back to that cognitive overload, I think you get that. But we have that. And we, so we share the curriculum. Once, once we're in contract, we share the curriculum. But that's just a part of it, right? So we are in the process of finalizing all our filmed lectures and labs that they will have access to. We, we use Vimeo as the mode. So Vimeo can be embedded into Blackboard Moodle Canvas, right? So you're not going to a separate site 
you can stay within your course management system at your university. But our collaboration is so much more than the curriculum, and that's what I'm really excited to talk to you about. So the first thing we do is we have like a, a six-point faculty coaching process. So we feel that to, to make that shift from Sage on the Stage to an expert educator, faculty needs some development. So we've created this really cool faculty development program that will modify slightly for each program and their faculty. But it includes things like what is a curriculum and, and what is the role of the faculty, as well as how to, what is the neurobiology of learning? How do your students really learn? Um, how to create and foster engaged learning? We have an introduction to assessment, but then Steve Ambler is one of our experts that created an introduction to competency-based learning. Uh, we would never force a university to select that, but but should they choose it, which we encourage, we want them to be skilled in it because it's, it's still kind of unknown, right, to most of us. One of the segments uh, of the learning is about student success and coaching students and remediation, like all of that combined. Uh, Lisa Van Hoos calls that professional student development. So focusing on remediation being part of the process, not an end thing that happens when someone you know, fails or something. But importantly, we don't just provide it. We do these, we, we actually do it very similar to how in tandem was designed. So the faculty that we're collaborating with, they get a brief 15 minute or so, 20 minute segment about a topic. So I did the neurobiology of learning and they're asked some thoughtful questions that they need to come prepared to discuss. And then we have a synchronous Zoom session with those faculty we help them apply those principles. You know, how would you apply that in X, Y, Z? And, you know, some of my questions with our first collaborator was, so you're a faith-based university. How does this concept lean into the faith-based instruction? So there's this ongoing faculty collaboration. We also, in uh, Rehab Essentials slash in tandem, we meet, I've been meeting with the program director of our first collaborator, for over a year now. And we talk about, you know, how do you prepare students for a flipped classroom, which is the model they're using? Um, what are some of the readings that might help faculty and, and students? We also support marketing to describe this collaborative process. Because quite frankly, I've Scott, no one's done something like this. No one has truly collaborated. And then of course, we meet prior to every semester starting and after every semester, the prior is to make sure everybody's on the same page. Do you have any questions? Uh, we will brainstorm with the university faculty for those applied learning ideas. You know, so you might call me and say, I have this great idea about going to a senior center. What do you think? I'd be like, that's awesome. And we would talk about strategies. So it's, it's an ongoing relationship that will continue to evolve and it will be unique with each program because each program has a different mission and philosophy. As I mentioned, we share marketing strategies. We can also, this is so different, is that if it's a new program, we could also say, you're going to need to look for some special people, right? That there's a lot of great sage on the stage out there, but maybe you want someone who's really, you know, excited like you are about how people learn. Um, so again, it's a, it's a process, not a product, and it continues. Um, and I think it's 
really, really a, a cool way uh, to approach PT education. Again, imagine the support. Even as a program director, I would have loved to have the support of intent, the things that we're doing because I kept teaching my faculty over and over again or involving them or asking questions. We even, besides providing content, we in some in our courses that are in the track about professional formation and health society and policy, we actually share some ideas for implementation or here are the foundational articles that we use to create the content. Um, so there's so much sharing and give and go. At the end of each semester, we're going to get feedback. And if there's things that need to change, our job is to be responsive to that change. Yeah, I mean, that is pretty amazing. It's all encompassing for sure, it sounds like, because I, I've been having this discussion a lot lately with, uh, you know, the CAPTI standard of wanting 50% of faculty to be terminal degrees. Okay, well, that seems very arbitrary to me because I've had DPTs with an OCS maybe or something like that come in and teach amazingly. And then I've had PhDs who didn't know how to teach at all. They were phenomenal researchers. They got their PhD because they could knock it out of the park with research, but teaching was never taught to them. They don't know how to teach. They're physical therapists first who did a lot of research and finished a PhD. Now there's some PhDs or EDDs, I would hope, you know, for the most part, no sub aspects of how to teach and they get better at it as they go. But, you know, with some terminal degrees, that's not even in their wheelhouse. That's not something they want to do. That's not some, some, something they're interested in. They want to lead in on the research. They have to teach a little bit. So it's like, well, you know, well, are we almost doing office, a disservice, um, you know? How much time do you have? Yeah. Like, you know, you like where I taught, I wasn't in a research one university, but even in research one universities, you know, the business of higher education is definitely a business more than it ever was before. And this model frees up, you know, imagine that 40%, 45% of your contact hours have been done for you. Now you have time. Where, where are you going to spend that time? You might want to lean into educational research. You might want to do clinical research, or you might want to spend more time in the clinic, which, you know, Jensen et al.'s article and research showed that faculty that keep their hands in clinical practice to some degree, are more influential with their students. Um, also a service to the profession. You know, I worked with faculty that said to me, because I would encourage service, you know, get involved in such and such, you know, uh, academy. And people would say, listen, I am busy enough creating my lectures, updating them. I don't have time to be the secretary of the such and such academy. And that's a loss because, you know, as well as I do, we create amazing professional relationships. It builds, it helps you grow and learn just those connections you have on those committees. Those committees take time. Well, this affords the time. And in an R1 university, imagine that those individuals that you talked about, that their, their goal is really to, you know, contribute to the body of knowledge in our, of our profession. That's good because they're not spending their time lecturing. The, the idea they spend their time with the applied learning. So I think faculty are really, really benefit a lot. Although I'm going to be honest in the people that I've talked to both, you know, about this program, respective interested programs, and even some of my friends and colleagues that I used to work with, the first thing they do is say, I don't want somebody lecturing on my content, right? Like as if 
their identity is only in their lectures. And a funny conversation I had recently, I then asked my friend, so you like creating lectures and then delivering them and updating them? Oh, no, I hate it. Well, then why are you opposed to somebody else doing it, right? And um, and so for all of these reasons, I, I think it's the biggest pushback, quite frankly, that we've had is that faculty want to be in charge of the content. But just like Ezekiel Emanuel said, that's silly because that's not where the magic happened. Actually, the magic happens in the clinic. Let's let's be honest. And a shout out to all the clinical educators out there in the ACCE and the SECs um, for that very reason, because that's because it's applying. And having taught in a in a problem based curriculum where we were at this age on the stage, I I will tell you, students work harder a little bit because they have to consolidate information before they apply it in, in an active lab, but they learn really, really well. Um, so anyway, th those are other reasons I think that for faculty, it would be a critically important shift in the way they approach being an educator.